Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I'm your host, Chris Russo. I know it's been a thrilling week football-wise in that we have, you know, the Manziel doc coming out and Hard Knocks premiering last night. That was really entertaining. And then, of course, we also have the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We're definitely going to be talking about that. But we're going to start with baseball. And the first thing is that the Rays' Shane McClanahan, uh, just a solid starting pitcher, is, quote, highly unlikely, unquote, according to Kevin Cash, to pitch again this season. He is scheduled to see another specialist about his left forearm for a final opinion, but it does seem like he is probably not going to pitch again the rest of the year. Again, that's a raised team that was very hot early on, hasn't been as strong, hasn't really been able to maintain that historic pace, but to the point that they have actually fallen out of first place. They are the number one wild card right now, still very, very good. And of course, a lot of that, just historically for the Rays, a lot of their success is tied in with their pitching, especially because of just just a lack of offense. They, they have generally had very low scoring team, but also they're a small market team that has, I think, the lowest budget in baseball. But of course, through analytics, they've been able to manage it so well. And they've limited their starters in terms of innings. Unfortunately for them, that hasn't really worked in terms of injuries with, with, with McClanahan, at least at this point. Remarkable season if he finishes right here. 11-2, a 3.29 ERA, 121 strikeouts, and a 1.18 whip. Probably would have been front of the rotation. Definitely would have gotten... An early game in the postseason, if not the first game. Well, first game would probably go to glass now. But, I mean, McClanahan, maybe their number two guy. You can argue that. Very difficult loss for them. But you can say they made the right move trading for Aaron Savali from Cleveland. That was an excellent move. And it was around the same time that I think McClanahan had even gone on to the injured list. So... Tampa is still in good position, but a difficult loss for them as Aaron Savali really just would have been icing. Transitioning to the historic collapse from last season to this season within the Mets organization, Steve Cohen has written a letter to fans and just tried to explain himself personally. He says he can't promise to be all-in on free agency in 2024. He's probably right about that, because you don't want to spend, again, an inordinate amount of money, especially if it's not going to help you in the short term. But he does say that he hopes to, quote, work things out, unquote, with Pete Alonso. I'm going to say it right here. The Mets must keep Pete Alonso. This is an understatement, but it is true. He is the best power hitter that they have had since Mike Piazza. And he might go down as the best position player in the history of the organization. He is on that pace. He is probably their best home run hitter since Piazza. Maybe going all the way back to Strawberry. Remarkable. And he's beloved within the organization. Beloved by the fan base and has done so much to endear himself with, I mean, I remember the whole thing with the cleats and tunnels to towers. 
and so just a, a beloved person. But really, from from a baseball standpoint too, they have to keep him. Cohen threw that letter to season ticket holders on Saturday, assured fans that the deadline sets up the Mets for a good future. Which I think is fair considering how much they got in return. We'll see how the prospects pan out, but he spent $90 million in the offseason. Really, he spent $90 million to revamp his farm system, if you think about it. Because he traded away Scherzer, traded away Verlander, traded away a couple other guys as well, traded Escobar earlier in the season. Of course, that was not a big deal, but got serious prospects for them. He explains his disappointment regarding the 2023 season to fans and Really, you know what, I'll give him credit because this was a failed experiment. This was a botched experiment, but it seems like he's going to turn it into something. It seems like that's what they're where they are right now. And you can also give him credit for just swallowing his pride. That's really big that he could actually swallow his pride and sell off everything in the midst of all of that. I can say I have actually seen some of the fruition of the Mets trades firsthand because in this past week I was working, of course, with the Blue Claws. They were hosting the Brooklyn Cyclones, the high-A affiliate of the New York Metropolitans. And in the first game I worked this week, a guy named Ryan Clifford came to the plate, and I realized that sounded familiar, and I actually realized that he was one of two prospects the Mets had gotten for Justin Verlander. He was the number one prospect in the Houston system. Apparently not a very deep farm system, because a lot of their guys had gotten to the majors as well, but he was really able to prove his worth because he homered in his first at-bat in the Mets organization. Now, he wasn't that great for the week. He hit below 200, but... Again, cleared the right field wall with a two-run homer in Lakewood, so really showing promise, like he could have a, a nice high ceiling. Jacob Reimer was the other guy they got for Verlander. He was the number four prospect in Houston system. He had a, a, a decent week, I would say. Clifford is now the number six prospect for the Mets. Uh, again, the Mets have a deeper system to be fair, but still there's something there. Another thing to note, by the way, Brett Beatty has been sent down to AAA. Buck Showalter has called it, quote, just a little timeout, unquote. And so it seems like it'll probably be a short-term thing. Again, the Mets aren't really going anywhere. It could be a good, it's a good time to just experiment, I suppose, and see what, what will work for next year. Also, Starling Marte goes on the 10-day IL with a right groin strain. Very tough for the Mets. He had it, it seems like he's been seems like he's been injured most of the year. On the other side of town, Anthony Rizzo ends up on the 10-day IL with post-concussion syndrome. Yankees recall Oswaldo Cabrera. That's right, the Yankees. Put him on the IL with post 
concussion syndrome. Well, let's put it this way. The Yankees need to look into their training methods considering this plus the Domingo Herman incident, if that, if that wasn't a cover story. I mean, for all we know, that was just a flat-out lie. But you may remember that Herman, before checking into voluntary rehab, essentially, for alcoholism, was scheduled to start a game last Monday against the Rays, ended up not starting. The team said he had discomfort in his armpit. The report was that around sometime in the late afternoon, he said that I, he can't start, I can't start, but I can pitch him relief, as if that makes any sense. So he came in in the fifth inning after Johnny Brito had been hammered. Herman ended up going four innings, giving up, I think, maybe a hit and not allowing a run. Really de derailed the Yankees' chances to win. That Not that that's the most important thing, but it just, from a baseball standpoint, did not make sense and probably goes into the lack of logic with the whole incident. And so now you have this thing with Rizzo, because that's right, I said post-concussion syndrome. And it would really explain Rizzo's remarkable slump of a month and a half, maybe two months. And some fans have actually pointed to an incident earlier in the year where Rizzo hit his head on someone's thigh. And perhaps that was the incident, but I mean, first off, you know, it, it seemed that's actually impressive for Rizzo that he actually hit that quote unquote well through an entire concussion. But really, that's just a just so horribly handled. Somebody had to have seen this. I understand concussions are more of a football thing, more of a hockey thing. But wow, I cannot believe that nobody noticed this for that long. And you think about the Yankees and the history of their training staff, they have, I mean, what other franchise really, however many few, however few franchises have really honored their trainers that much? I mean, you look at, you watch like Old Timers Day and Gene Monahan is beloved. If, there, if there's ever a trainer, an athletic trainer, who goes into the Baseball Hall of Fame, it's probably going to be Gene Monahan. And then you have Steve Donahue, who was his apprentice for years, and then led the Yankees training staff. He's kind of an advisor emeritus, a, a, a trainer emeritus now. But this is ridiculous, and you never heard anything like this. Not that I can think of. You never heard anything like this with the Yankees or with with any other baseball club off the top of my head that I can think of. And so it's it's a real unfortunate thing and you should just expect better. Because again, it's not just a I mean it's it's terrible from a baseball standpoint because it's just, you know, you shouldn't allow him to play and it helps your ball club if he sits. But from a human standpoint, it's also awful. Because you would have to think somebody noticed it, right? I know. 
I, I, I just very disappointing from a human standpoint. And it's it's funny. You also think it's not just his teammates. You'd have to think his family would notice at some point something. But I don't know. Just a remarkable, unfortunate incident. But also speaking about the Yankees, Nestor Cortez on the bright side did return from the 60-day IL to throw four innings against Houston. He ended up throwing four innings of one-run ball on Saturday against the Astros as part of a series split with the defending champions. Downside for the Yankees is that Carlos Rodon exited with left hamstring tightness in Sunday's 9-7 loss. From a baseball standpoint, very difficult for the Yankees in that they left a season-high 15 men on base. They trailed by four twice, came back to tie it the first time, and came within about 10 feet of a walk-off home run by Giancarlo Stanton, who hit one of the warning track in center down to their last out. Rodon, in turn, has been placed on the 15-day IL. Yankees took a game in Chicago against the White Sox last night, picked up a game on the O's, Jays, and Sox as the Rays recorded a victory. Moving back out west, Shohei Otani gets his 40th home run of the year this week. He had entered Monday on pace for 57, which would put him short of judge. Seems like it's still you know, within the realm of possibility if you're five off the pace. That's not bad at all. He's got, you know, a month and a half to go. But even if not judged, it's still remarkable because 57 home runs, if he were to hit 57, would be tied for the most in the history of the AL West with Alex Rodriguez in his 2002 season with the Texas Rangers. And even then, A-Rod admitted to doing steroids at that time. So, really, it would be Otani. It would also be the most hit in a season in the AL by a player born outside the U.S. That is currently held jointly by Jose Bautista and David Ortiz, who each hit 54. Both players had steroid allegations, more credibly the latter. Of course, Ortiz had the was the subject of a New York Times article back in 2009 that said he allegedly tested positive for steroids in 2003. Tests that were actually just sealed and somehow not available to be released to the public, which is outrageous, especially for a guy who's now in the Hall of Fame. But the point is, Otani would be, in my opinion, the de facto record holder, and probably the de facto record holder for home runs by some by anyone born outside the U.S. because Sammy Sosa was the only other one in front of him. The most home runs in a single season by any player without any sort of steroid allegations and was born outside the U.S., that would be, believe it or not, Eugenio Suarez, who hit 49 back in 2019. Otani already owns the record for home runs in a single season by an Asian-born player with 46 back in 2021. Also remarkable, he becomes the fastest player ever in terms of team games played to reach 40 home runs and 15 steals in a season, surpassing, of all people, Ken Griffey Jr., in my opinion, probably the best baseball player of the last half century. 
Also of note this week, the Braves become the first team to 70 wins on the year. The Orioles have since reached that mark. As Max Freed returned for a Friday day game against the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. It's probably the only place where you will find a Friday afternoon game. He returned with six shutout innings of three-hit ball against a Cub team that is just on the outside looking in of the postseason picture. Then, maybe the biggest story of the week in Major League Baseball, this one was fun. Jose Ramirez KO'd Tim Anderson in Saturday night's brawl between the Guardians and the White Sox. Again, if you did not see it, first off, you missed out. And don't get me wrong, I don't endorse violence, okay? I mean, but come on, we'd be lying if we didn't enjoy a good baseball brawl. For God's sakes, Major League Baseball actually has a, a playlist on their YouTube channel just of brawls. It is so entertaining. And so, I mean, as long as no one's seriously injured, I mean, unless they're asking for it, we enjoy a good one. And so, this was, I think, the first big one of the year. So, in case you didn't see it, Ramirez slid into second between the legs of Anderson. I don't, I didn't see anything. I didn't really see Anderson say anything, but you'd have to imagine Anderson said something for Ramirez to get up like that. It would it would make the most sense to me. It would also explain in part the punishment. But then, of course, Ramirez got up. They eventually began to trade blows. It wasn't a lot of serious punching, although as Ramirez was being held back, he got one shot off that was not really a punch. It was more just a closed fist swing, but it wasn't moving forward. It was coming from the side. But still, he KO'd Tim Anderson. That was, that was something. Now, looking at it from a, a past standpoint, now, Tim Anderson is not... He's a good ball player, but he's not the most endearing player. And he has been at the middle of beef before. He is... You know, I know we've said, oh, but, you know, bat flips are okay. And I think they're okay as long as you're not going over the top or showing up the pitcher for no good, re- for for any other reason than, you know, like actual revenge for a good reason or something like that. But Anderson has been at the, the center of, or close to the center of that whole bat flip debate, has been a little bit of a provocateur in that sense at times. And of course there was the beef with Josh Donaldson and it seemed like Donaldson was at fault, but I feel like there was something missing to that. Donaldson, I will say, equally unendearing. Another guy who has been a part of, you know, he's, he's been kind of a show-off at times. Tend has tended to be a showboat. Anderson's gone for that as well, but there was the whole thing, I, it was I believe the quote was Anderson had said something to the extent of, I'm the next Jackie Robinson, like I'm bringing that to the game, which is a ridiculous quote, and that Donaldson kept calling him Jackie, which could be seen as a racial thing, also 
Donaldson apparently thought it was in a joking fashion. Anderson apparently did not think so. I don't know what to make of it. I don't know. I think I I don't like any. I don't I, I don't agree with any party in this situation because Donaldson has a past. Anderson has a past. Whatever. Ramirez, meanwhile, is a guy who just has better leadership qualities. He's been around in this this game longer. He is more respected by, I think, baseball fans in general. He's frankly, he has more likability. It's true. And apparently, the, the the big reason, or so it seemed, I was I was actually watching the. White Sox-Yankees game the other night, and of course I'm here in New Jersey, so I was watching it on Yes, and Michael Kay had said that he had spoken to Tom Hamilton, the longtime radio voice of the Cleveland, now Guardians, and he had said, first off, that Jose Ramirez is a very soft-spoken guy, and this is very much unlike him, and secondly, that the root of this was apparently that Anderson had spoken unkindly of Cleveland's rookies in particular. And so Ramirez really is the elder statesman of the team and is the one, probably the one guy who is really the big holdover from that 2016 pennant winning team has been there for the long haul. So, you know, you got to stand up for your guys, I guess. I, he, I, he probably obviously took it too far, but... I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if Anderson actually said something. I'm not sure. The thing is, this is also heightened because, you know, you're in the dead of summer and these two teams are should be far better than their records indicate. Cleveland's a little closer to the playoffs, but they're still below 500. And they're a team that won their division last year, pushed the Yankees to five games in the division series, had a really good year, and they've just taken a step back. The White Sox are a team that's also supposed to be loaded, and they are pitching, hitting, etc., and they've taken a huge step back. So it's very, very odd, and that just heightens the frustration. Especially in the worst division in baseball, the AL Central. The Twins are the best team, and the Twins are also capable, I think, of more, but have just not been that great. There are a lot of teams that do not lead their division that would lead the AL Central. And I will also say, for just from a physical, from a head-to-head in the physical standpoint here, Anderson may be taller, but you Jose Ramirez just looks like you don't want to mess with him. That dude will mess you up. He's 5'9", but he's 5'9", 190, apparently. And so that's that's significant. I think Tim Anderson's like 6'6", six, six something like that. But that would, like, you you do not want to, Tim Anderson, you know, maybe you can fight. Jose Ramirez, you don't want to mess with that guy. Now, Anderson was suspended six games and will appeal, is appealing. Ramirez was suspended three. Now, I suspect that for one thing, Anderson said something. The second thing is, it looked like Anderson, quote-unquote, dropped the gloves first when they went into that boxing pose, it looked like Anderson went into it first. And then on top of that, Anderson has more of a history. Emmanuel Classe was suspended one game. Terry Francona was suspended one game. Pedro Grifol 
was also suspended. I I really don't under, I did not realize that managers cannot appeal, and I don't understand why. Doesn't make sense to me. I, I guess it makes sense if it's you know you know the thing where a pitcher gets tossed for throwing at somebody, and the manager automatically gets ejected. I understand that, but this was an incident in the middle of the field, in the middle of play that was I don't think choreographed, and so I don't quite understand it. But just real, a real mess. And what was really unfortunate was that I found out the the other thing I found out from listening to Michael Kay and this whole thing with Tom Hamilton is that they don't play each other again this year. And that makes me so sad. I would love to see these two play each other again, whether it's in Chicago or in or in Cleveland, because it would be nuts. And so I don't know. Maybe they both maybe they both go insane and somehow sneak into the playoffs. I don't know. But next year, probably, be ready. I don't know what... The, I forget what the schedule is exactly. Well, I mean, it's 162 games. I don't know what the schedule is exactly, but it's going to be... It's going to be absolute madness. Now, speaking of the White Sox, Kenyon Middleton, who had just been traded from the White Sox to the Yankees, was very critical this week of his old club, said the White Sox, first off, have a, quote, no rules, unquote, culture and says that a rookie would regularly sleep in the bullpen. That has been confirmed, apparently. And that players have been regularly missing meetings. The White Sox have not put comment to this, but there are multiple sources that have confirmed the at least the bullpen story, which is insane. I understand, you know, it's... You know, you, you don't, I mean, sitting in the bullpen for much of the game can't be the most thrilling thing when you're not part of the action and you're so far away from it, but that's inexcusable because anything can happen in baseball. You have to be ready to go. Now, I will say, Tony LaRusso was not exactly a player's manager in Chicago, was very out of touch, but I'll give him this, the team made the playoffs. And things, obviously, the culture has has not changed in that clubhouse, maybe even gotten worse. The White Sox, frankly, went from being wound too tightly to being wound too loosely. Just unwound too loosely. Now, now Middleton, to his credit, it, it's nice to see a player step up and want the responsibility because he said, you know, he went to the Yankees, and the Yankees are obviously, a, a, you know, no nonsense in terms of the facial hair. We've done this for a long time. And he said, look, I didn't want to shave my beard. I wanted to be with the Yankees. And so it's it's refreshing to see that some to see that sort of player responsibility and just kind of that sort of authority. But it's a really disappointing thing, and it, do, it does explain. Look, it doesn't say anything about their everything about their performance, but it does explain a lot about where the White Sox are this season. I wouldn't be surprised if the managerial change had to do with it, and I, I would love to hear the White Sox try to discuss this because it might it, it might actually help to just be more out in the open about these things. Now, last thing baseball wise, and that is that Framber Valdez. Won AL Player of the Week with his no-hitter. 
That one was not as surprising. The one that was maybe a little up in the air in the NL, Freddie Freeman, named Player of the Week, two homers, seven ribbies, and a 14.59 OPS. I know it's just for a week, small sample size, still remarkable. We move on to what I would argue is the biggest topic of the week, and that is the Pro Football Hall of Fame induction. We begin with Rondé Barber, and we're going to do this in alphabetical order. Rondé Barber, 16-year career Buccaneer, Super Bowl champion, five-time Pro Bowler, 2000s All-Decade team, 47 interceptions, 28 sacks, 14 total touchdowns. No player in the history of football has both more sacks and more interceptions than Rondé Barber. As a matter of fact, I think there was only one player who I saw ahead of him in picks who even had 20 sacks, let alone 25, let alone 28. Really one of the most dominant corners ever. Biggest moment of his career, besides obviously winning the Super Bowl, closing the vet in Philadelphia, closing Veterans Stadium with a pick six in the NFC Championship game against the Eagles. Part of the core of one of the best defenses ever, along with Derek Brooks, John Lynch, and despite his abhorrent off-field behavior, Warren Sapp. Just an unbelievable dominant defense. And then you also factor in that he's the twin brother of a guy who is at least Hall of Very Good in Tiki Barber, who is still the Giants' all-time leading rusher. So really just a remarkable career for him. One of the unfortunate topics, uh, one of the unfortunate themes of the Hall of Fame this year was guys who got in far too late. One of them is Don Coryell, and unfortunately Don Coryell passed in 2010. If you do not know Don Coryell, he is perhaps... Believe it or not, he might actually be the most important person and the most influential person in terms of what the NFL is today. Even though he never won a Super Bowl, never reached a Super Bowl. He coached for 14 years. He was a head coach for 14 years. Coached the St. Louis Cardinals from 1973 to 1977. Coached the San Diego Chargers from 1978 to 1986. I, I seriously believe he is perhaps more important to today's NFL than any other individual after promoting, I would say, the first ridiculously pass-happy deep ball team. And in doing so, did promote a winning culture. They never, He never won a Super Bowl, but he led the Chargers to consecutive AFC Championship games while promoting a Hall of Fame quarterback in Dan Fouts and the best tight end of the league's first 70 to 75 years in Kellen Winslow. And it's a, it's a Charger team that reached the AFC Championship but lost to the, the Raider dynasty in 1981 and then lost in 1982 to the Bengals after playing in one of the hottest games in league history in Miami, the double overtime, the miracle in Miami, one of the best games ever, and then having to play in the coldest game in NFL history in Cincinnati, 59 below windchill. Negative 59-degree wind chill. Absolutely ridiculous. His coaching tree, by the way, whether it's directly or not, his coaching tree directly under him is John Madden and Joe Gibbs, two Hall of Fame coaches, two of the best ever. Because of John Madden, later on, Tom Flores is, is, is also in there. There are a lot of other... That's just the tip of the iceberg, by the way. Other guys on his coaching tree, Art Shell, 
John Fox, Chuck Pagano, Jack Del Rio, Bruce Arians, Brad Childress, Tom Cable, Dennis Allen, Dan Quinn, Jim Mora Jr., Jim Fossil, Sean Payton, Dan Campbell, Doug Marone, Kevin O'Connell, Kyle Shanahan, Mike McCarthy, Jeff Fisher, Steve Mariucci, Norv Turner, Jim Schwartz, Matt LaFleur, Mike Martz, Ron Rivera, Lovey Smith, Sean McDermott, Brian Dable. These are some of the best coaches in the game today. Some of the best coaches ever. A number of those guys that I probably named are going to be in the Hall of Fame, I would argue. McCarthy, I think, eventually. Fisher, eventually. Martz, I wouldn't be surprised, eventually. Ron Rivera, very well. Lovey Smith, possibly. Arians, I would make the argument. Fox, you can make the argument. Even Fossil, maybe down the line, you can make the argument. Peyton, definitely. Remarkable. By the way, this took me down a cool rabbit hole. You can find this all on pro-football-history.com. Like, the way, same way you, you type pro football reference. Pro football history. It's really fascinating. Unfortunately, of course, Don passed in 2010. His daughter, Mindy, was able to give the speech for him, and it was lovely. Another person who's in far too late. He is fortunately still with us. But he has some issues, some, some mental issues. He's 87 years old that's, and was unable to attend the ceremony. That's Chuck Howley. His son was able to deliver the speech. Chuck Howley, a guy who got in far too late, was eligible. I think Chris Berman said was eligible for 49 years before he finally got in. He is the only player to win Super Bowl MVP in a losing effort. And the way things go now, that's probably never going to happen again. He played the vast majority of his career in Dallas, played 58 and 59 with the Bears, missed the entire 1960 season, played 61 to 73 with the Cowboys. In that losing effort in the Super Bowl, 16-13 loss to the Baltimore Colts, by the way, in Super Bowl V, he had two interceptions and a fumble recovery. By the way, this was the first Super Bowl the Cowboys ever played in. The next year, they would end up winning the Super Bowl against the Dolphins. That's Super Bowl VI, a team that would go on to be undefeated the year after that and win another Super Bowl after that. He had a fumble recovery and a 41-yard interception return to set up 10 of the Cowboys' 24 points in that 24-3 victory. For his career, this was remarkable. 43 takeaways. That's the second most ever by an outside linebacker. Only Jack Ham has more. Jack Ham, crucial part of the Steel Curtain defense. For Howley's career, 25 interceptions, 18 fumble recoveries. By the way, a five-time first-team All-Pro, Super Bowl champion, two-time NFC champion, and a 15-year vet, 13 with the Cowboys. It's ridiculous that he did not get in sooner. Joe Klecko, also in far too late, but not as late as the other guys I've mentioned here, because he is still alive and in good health. Believe it or not, Frank Gifford is the only other player in history to make the Pro Bowl at three different positions. Klecko did so at defensive end, defensive tackle, and nose tackle. He recorded 78 sacks and 155 games played over 12 seasons, 11 of which came with the Jets on the New York Sack Exchange. 1981 NFL Defensive Player of the Year. That was the last year, by the way, that the league had not recorded sacks. A sixth-round pick out of Temple, still lives in, in PA, Chester, PA, I believe. Helped lead the Jets to the AFC Championship game in 1982. 
A 10-0 loss, by the way. So it's not on him. Only the third Jet with his number retired. And the first defensive player ever to have his number retired by the Jets. Two guys in front of him, both easy Hall of Famers. Joe Namath, Don Maynard. Also, Klecko, great run stopper, and which explains why he played at three different positions and vice versa. Definitely would have had more sacks if he was strictly a defensive end. And of course, you know, 11 years or 12 years, not the longest career by comparison to to some guys. So would have definitely had more sacks if he was able to stay healthier and really stayed at defensive end the entire time. Mark Gastineau, by the way, another part of that defensive line, Mark Gastineau has to get in because he had 107.5 sacks in just 10 seasons. Truly remarkable. Klecko, by the way, also the father of a three-time Super Bowl champion, O-lineman in Dan Klecko. Two Super Bowls with the Pats, one with the Colts. Speaking of Jets, Darrell Revis, one of the greatest absolute shutdown corners ever. Played 11 seasons, 8 with the Jets, won a Super Bowl with New England in 2014, for which he was booed by Jet fans at his Hall of Fame ceremony. Not when he brought it up, when Chris Byrne brought it up. If you're a Jet fan, I can't really blame you for saying it. Also, that was the Deflategate Super Bowl. So, Revis, believe it or not, came from the QB-heavy area that is Western Pennsylvania, so it's rather ironic. 29 picks, 139 pass deflections, member of the 2010's All-Decade team, 7-time Pro Bowler in 11 seasons, and was perhaps the best player, probably the best player, for the Jets when he helped lead them to consecutive AFC Championship games in 2010 and 2011. They came oh so close to reaching the Super Bowl those two years. Narrow loss to the Colts, even more narrow loss to the Pittsburgh Steelers. So uh, he was definitely a guy who got in on time. Ken Riley, also in too late. He passed away in 2020, unfortunately. Suddenly of a heart attack at age 72. A remarkable 65 interceptions for his career. Tied for fifth all-time with Charles Woodson. This was in 15 seasons. Woodson played 18. By the way, all of these were with Cincinnati. Helped lead the Bengals to the 1981 AFC Championship, where they, of course, beat the aforementioned Chargers, and then lost a heartbreaker to the 49ers 26-21. This was a season in which he recorded five interceptions. He is Cincinnati's career leader in interceptions, interception return yards, and pick sixes, and he is second in team history with 18 fumble recoveries, second in terms of defensive players. Only Rod Woodson has recorded more picks since Ken Riley retired. And also, you really want to talk about his character, because his son, Ken II, who gave the speech, he was presented by his, his widow, Barbara, by the way, Ken's son, Ken II, spoke about his father having gone to Florida A&M and HBCU, and, of course, from Florida... Ken made the decision not to take better coaching jobs in order to allow his children to finish their education in his home state of Florida. And now all three kids have graduated college, and both his daughters have postgraduate degrees. One daughter actually has a master's. And that was kind of a thing I just wanted to single out and talk about. You know, we talk about how good a player 
any given guy is, but it's also an important thing to single out their off-field achievements. I thought that was something really to note. Joe Thomas, another Ohio guy, played all 11 seasons in Cleveland, considered one of the best offensive linemen ever. Ten Pro Bowl selections in 11 seasons. That's incredibly rare. A six-time first-team All-Pro, most consecutive snaps played in the NFL with 10,363. How many of us could actually play one snap and survive? Especially on the line of scrimmage. At the most blitzed position. You're always coming at the left tackle. And so that's an incredible, incredible stat. By the way, he is also the first Brown inducted since the franchise was reborn in 1999 after they were horribly and unfairly stripped of their team and as it was moved to Baltimore. This is the brightest spot for a team and a city that have been so overlooked and underappreciated. And again, you know, you talk about the Browns and and they've been a punchline for so long. And the, the thing is, th- that's kind of a badge of honor when it comes to Joe Thomas because he is so good that he was a pro bowler all but once in an 11-year career despite having six different head coaches. That's more than one every two years. 22 quarterbacks and no playoff appearances. And the last year of his career was the year the Browns won zero games. And so Joe Thomas is just a testament to the city of Cleveland. Just a true hard worker. And speaking of hard worker, Zach Thomas, a guy who is in probably later than he should have been, but definitely still around to to see it, fortunately. The definition of hard worker, described as the hardest working player by Jimmy Johnson for his time as a head coach. And that's saying something when you consider that Johnson also coached in Dallas, coached a couple of Super Bowl winners, and did great work at Miami as well. National championship coach at Miami. And so for him to say that is really something impressive. Thomas. Seven-time Pro Bowler, twice led the league in tackles, recorded 1,734 tackles for his 13-year career. It should also be noted, actually, that it's interesting that Jimmy Johnson was his head coach and presented him because Zach Thomas is a Texas native. You could hear it in his voice, ended up playing for the Cowboys last season of his career. So rather appropriate that probably the best coach the Cowboys have had since Tom Landry would actually be Thomas's leader for the first four years of his pro career. Thomas had 17 picks and 16 forced fumbles. He recorded his career high in tackles in his 11th season out of 13. Just hitting a high late. And last but not least... Just one of the best pass rushers 
in recent memory, if not ever, maybe the best defensive player the Dallas Cowboys have ever had, DeMarcus Ware. A 12-year vet, nine with the Cowboys, three with Denver. Those three will be very important, as we'll talk about later on. Recorded 138.5 sacks and 35 forced fumbles as a nine-time Pro Bowler. A member of the 2000s All-Decade team, despite only playing half the decade. He came into the league in 2005. The big thing, of course, went to Denver, won Super Bowl 50 with the Broncos. That was a team that was anchored by its defense. Yes, they have a t- they had a top three quarterback all time in Peyton Manning. But, of course, Peyton was in his last season. That team was based on defense. He is Dallas's all-time leader with 117 sacks and 32 forced fumbles. And by the way, this is a Dallas team that has had some of the best defensive players ever. Chuck Howley, the aforementioned, Harvey Martin, Randy White, Ed Tuttle-Jones, Bob Lilly, Leroy Jordan, Jethro Pugh, Darren Woodson, Mel Renfro, Cliff Harris. I even forgot Deion Sanders. I'm literally looking at pro football reference because they have so many excellent defensive players. I even forgot about Everson Walls. Everson Walls, who I argue should be in the Hall of Fame. I don't know why he's not yet. Herb Adderley. Wow, Herb Adderley played for them for a time? Wow. Just so many remarkable names. And out of all of that, Honestly, DeMarcus Ware might be the best Cowboy defender ever. In terms of current players, we do have some free agent news. For one thing, the Bears signed Yannick Ngakwe to a one-year $10.5 million deal. Though he has bounced around the league with five teams in the last four years, he is still only 29, and he recorded 9.5 sacks last season with the Colts and had 29 tackles. That's the most he's had in three years. The Saints signed Cameron Jordan to a two-year, $27.5 million extension. It is really hard to believe that he has played 12 years, all in New Orleans, with 115.5 sacks and eight Pro Bowl selections. He has played in at least 16 games every season. I was really happy to see uh, a friend of mine actually texted and said, good to see, something to the extent of, good to see guys and teams sticking with each other for a long period of time. And it's true, it's a nice thing. Cam Cam Jordan is just beloved in New Orleans. He's a future Hall of Famer and has just consistently played well, still at a a high level. On the flip side, though, the bad news is that Alvin Kamara was suspended three games uh, in addition to Indianapolis cornerback Chris Lamons for a battery arrest in Las Vegas that took place in February of 2022. Kamara had pled no contest. He was ordered to complete 30 hours of community service and pay over $100,000 in medical bills. It's There's a little bit of humor in it that it's actually kind of funny that he was also fined $500, as if that's anything relative to the bills or, or a potential five-year sentence, which is what maybe he would have had, let alone, you know, of course, what he's getting paid. He will miss games against the Titans, the Panthers, and the Packers, so, from a football standpoint, eh, the you know teams they're playing are okay. Speaking of Carolina, they signed Justin Houston to a one-year deal. Guy who has, you know, he's a solid linebacker in this league. Really made a name for himself in Kansas City in particular. And Carolina's still in just sort of a weird 
transition period, I think. Trey Flowers returns to New England. He played the first four years of his career with the Pats from 2015 through 2018, won two Super Bowls and three AFC titles, was a crucial part of their success. Of course, signed a huge deal with the Detroit Lions and followed Matt Patricia in 2019, played with the Lions from 2019 to 2021, didn't quite play up to his contract, nor really did Matt Patricia coach up to his contract, played with the Dolphins last year in 2022, Played four games last season before a foot injury put him on IR, so trying to get back on track with the Pats. Now, one of the other huge stories this week, as we move on to college football, well, it's, it's notably, most notably college football from a monetary standpoint, so much movement that Oregon and Washington are moving to the Big Ten. Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah are leaving the Pac-12 for the Big 12. The Pac-12 right now would have Four schools for the 2024-2025 campaign. In my opinion, this is just getting ridiculous, as if it wasn't already. In a 20-25 to year span where conference allegiances have just become a free-for-all, you know, I understand that student-athletes are finally getting paid, as I believe they should be, albeit I think only for endorsements, not for actual play akin to the Olympics. But the thing is, even if you are... Even if these kids are getting paid, and again, some of them are getting paid, you know, some of them are getting paid for, for you know, sponsorships, endorsements, etc. But not all of them are. And on top of that, you're making kids travel across the continent during their academic year. I know people keep saying, oh, no, no, no. you know, these guys are going to jump straight to the league. You know, whether it's the NFL, the NBA, et cetera, et cetera, they don't, you know, some people might say they don't need an education or that's secondary here. But you know what? A lot of these guys are not going to, the vast majority of these guys, vast majority of athletes, forget uh, forget just men, women, et cetera, vast majority of athletes in college are not going to play at a professional level. And so they actually need to think about their futures. And some people might not entirely realize that, or, or forget not realize that, might not know it yet. And the truth is, you have hopefully a long, long life after your athletic career comes to an end, even at a professional level. Okay, you know, unless you're, maybe unless you're a golfer, that's, that's about it. Most people most most athletes will live another at least another 40 years after their careers are over and you've got to do something afterwards and you've got to be smart you have to have some sort of discipline that you learn in college and so it's ridiculous to me that Rutgers and Washington are now in the same conference think about that New Brunswick New Jersey Seattle Washington they're in the same conference and on top of that, you know, it's disrupting it's disrupting the traditions of these conference games for ridiculous amounts of money. I understand the NCAA is making a lot of money. I, look, I think it's now that I can finally understand the greed of some of these conferences, and it's going to be especially unfair to the smaller ones like the American Athletic Conference, let alone com- even smaller conferences like the MAC. And it's just really outrageous. I had a coworker say. That, that college football, because that this is what 
this is what it's primarily about. It's, it's mostly about college football. Is just going to be the big conferences and the small conferences now. No in between. And now, conferences like the Pac-12 are just going to siphon off from conferences like the Mountain West and the AAC just to stay afloat. It's a vicious food chain that makes it even more difficult for schools like Cincinnati and Coastal Carolina to compete for a national championship, even with the CFP expansion, and it makes it even more difficult for mid- to smaller schools to compete because of NIL. And look, I can tell you, I went to Seton Hall and... I called games for them. They're not a football school. They are a big basketball school, big men's basketball school in particular. But it's not been easy for relatively small schools. Seton Hall, just as an example here, has about a 5,000 to 6,000 undergrad enrollment to compete. I'm really concerned about what this will do for college basketball, which has far more parity than the NBA. Is it going to be that we're going to get a lot more top-tier programs that actually make the tournament? And is it that the recruiting is going to be... There's going to be a bigger gap in recruiting between the best teams and the worst teams, or the best teams and, you know, the mid-level to high-level teams. Most Really, most importantly, between the schools that already have a lot of money that are, you know, like a school like Duke, and, for example, a Seton Hall or... I don't know, let's say Temple or, I don't know, like Butler or something like that. Big, big East is still a good conference, but it, it's a lot of those schools are not big schools necessarily. This is just a kind of a hypothetical here. The one upside I think it has is that for NCAA hockey, I think the whole NIL thing might give an advantage to NCAA hockey over junior finally because guys can make more in endorsements in in NCAA than they will in junior hockey. More, it's more popular, and so I, I I'm hoping that will give the advantage to American to American hockey and just the development of American hockey. That's what I'm hoping. I don't know. That's that's what I think. Moving on, the U.S. was eliminated by Sweden in the. Women's World Cup in the round of 16 in a one nothing PK loss. This is the earliest exit in the history of the U.S. women's national team. Frankly, just overall, I think the U.S. got a little too cocky because if you just look at their ad for Fox, it, it was kind of taunting and kind of made fun of other countries, as a matter of fact. So, uh, look, the U.S. women's national team demands excellence, and this was undoubtedly a subpar finish. Even if they got to the final, I think you could accept it because they've gotten to the final before. But round of 16 to Sweden is unacceptable. Look, expectations can be set high without making it a ridiculously public endeavor. And I'm not talking about this as much because, honestly, I would talk about, I would, I would have talked about it more, but I think it's the timing and the marketing have been difficult this year because, I'll be honest, I have actually not watched any of the World Cup this year. And it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that it's soccer or the fact that it's women's soccer. Actually, truth is, women's, especially as an American, women's soccer is probably more interesting than men's soccer on a, on, on a global scale. But just because of the timing, Australia, them having this in Australia and New Zealand just causes all the games to be played between, I think, between 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. and 6 a.m., roughly, on the East Coast. 
And the truth is they've marketed the games in total very well, but I don't know if, I don't think they've targeted, uh, I don't think they've marketed the individual games very well, at least in my opinion, as well as the tournament has been overall. So, Moving on to hockey, Tom Wilson signs a seven-year deal with the Capitals. He had 22 points in 33 games last season. I'm genuinely surprised the Capitals are signing him to such a long-term deal. I think it just points to the kind of unnecessary prolonging of much of this era of Capitals hockey. I think seven years is just excessive. Speaking of just a, a real prolong, unnecessary prolonging, the Penguins acquire Eric Carlson in a three-team deal that also includes the Montreal Canadiens. The Penguins trade away Mikhail Grant. Penguins trade away a lot. I will say the Penguins gave up a lot more than I expected them to give up. They gave up Mikhail Granlund, Jan Ruda, Jeff Petrie, and Casey DeSmith. Granlund, Ruda, and Montreal's Mike Hoffman go to San Jose. The Habs reacquire Jeff Petrie, who may be moved again. I don't know. And they get Casey DeSmith. Pittsburgh also gets Rem Pitlick. Carlson had the best year of his career and the best year of any defenseman in years, but the truth is he's 33. Defensively, I don't know how strong he's actually going to be. And the Pens did give up a lot, so I don't know. Matt Dumba signs a one-year deal with Arizona. He had 14 points in 79 games with Minnesota last season. Third on the team in time on ice. Top two in blocked shots and hits. Had spent 10 years with the Wild. In 598 games, 79 goals, 157 assists, 236 points. Reached the playoffs eight times. Anaheim signs Alex Stalock to a one-year deal. He went 9-15-2 last year with a 3.01 goals against, but he played for the Blackhawks, who had an awful year, and posted he had posted a 9.08 save percentage. That's the average for his career, by the way. A couple more things before we go. Congratulations are in order for Diana Taurasi, one of the great WNBA players of all time. She hit a 3 to become the first player ever. This is remarkable, whether it's Lisa Leslie, Cheryl Swoops, uh, Shamik Holdsclaw, a number of these players comes the first player ever with 10,000 points in the WNBA. And then uh, the last thing, as I was just rushing a little bit with uh, after football, kind of went, out, went a little long with that, Josh Hart signs a four-year, $81 million extension with the Knicks. Good value. I know it's funny to say good value when you spend $20 million a year, but good value overall. Guy who has been a great piece off the bench and even starting at times, and they're really adding to that sort of Villanova mentality to the Knicks who made a huge stride last year. So that'll do it for us this week. I thank you very much for your time and hope to see you, hear you, etc. next time on Sports in the Waiting Room.